The subject for this week, we've been going through this whole relationship series, and uh, it's kind of an interesting series. Uh, you know, looking at people who are above you and below you, you know, the, the sort of responsibility versus uh, authority thing. And this, this morning, we're going to talk about the people who look to you as influencers. Each one of us, I suspect, has somebody in our lives who looks to us and, and thinks of us as influential. That doesn't mean you're their boss, their leader, their parent. It just means that you're somebody who they look to for kind of the cues to how to get through life. We all have these people in our existence, if we're honest, and probably, I believe, we're all one of those people for someone else. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, I have to be honest with you. When we were going through the planning stages for this series, this was the week I think we struggled with as far as naming the, the service uh, theme the most. We just could not find a way to name this. And so I, I had this idea, and I'm going to tell you the story of how I got it, but loving your downline is kind of a strange deal. Doesn't that sound kind of weird? You know, loving your downline. But it came from my sister. My sister had just graduated from high school, and she was kind of floating around, like many of us do, looking for what's next in life, when this group of people uh, caught up to her. They recruited her at a local coffee shop. She started to meet with them, and they told her about this great thing she could be a part of called a team. And this team was going to develop her as a leader, and she was going to get her own personal business, and she was going to become this leader, and they were going to train her and do all these different things. And so she started to talk about it. Every family gathering, we had these conversations about, about her team and her leadership development process and all that was going on in her life. And that, that conversation kind of extended. It went beyond just a conversation to the point where she started to invite me and my wife to, our, to her team meetings. And she started to ask me to be a part of some stuff. And I said, so, okay, what is this thing? And she says, well, we get together and we do all this leadership stuff. And it was all kind of ambiguous. And then she said, well, really, at the end of it, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna sell some things, too. Oh, I'm going to sell some things. Yeah, you're going to sell. What, what am I going to sell? Well, juice. You're going to sell juice. I'm going to sell juice. Yes, you're going to sell juice. And we all sell juice. Well, you all sell juice. Why do you need leadership skills to sell juice? I don't understand. And she says, well, I get these people, and they're underneath me on this downline, and they sell juice for me. And then I, and I started to ask some questions. So, you know, how do you make money in this? Well, they sell the juice, and I get a percentage. So right now you're trying to sell us juice, and she actually was trying to sell my wife and I juice, and she says, if you buy this juice, then I make money, and what's more is the people above the line. This is called a pyramid scheme, right? You've run into these things? Now, if you're part of one of those, there are legal versions, and I'm not trying to pick it. This was a semi-legal variation on that theme, uh, but she was all about it. She was going to become a millionaire in like 18 months, and you know, she's not a millionaire. Um, she's just about to have her first child. She got married last year. And uh, she's not all that she hoped she would be through this whole process. In fact, pretty quickly she jettisoned the whole deal. But she invited beforehand, before she got rid of the, the whole team thing, she actually invited my wife and I to be a part of this. And we went to one of these meetings with her, and we kind of listened to what they had to say, and they were talking to us. And, and I started to ask some questions. And I said, so who benefits because of what you're doing? And they were kind of fudging that question. They didn't want to answer it. And I said, who actually is the beneficiary? And they said, well, it's the people above us. It's the people below who serve the people above. You see it. The pyramid is built like this with a fine point at the top and the broad part at the bottom. And the people down here actually make money so the people up here can get rich. 
the people up here, and she, she started to tell me stories. These people weren't actually working anymore. They were just kind of floating through life because these people down here were making them fabulously wealthy, and she was on that plan. Now, she had this whole idea she was going to use it for ministry and you know, help other people and all this stuff. But at the end of it, the people who were in leadership were not serving the people underneath of them. They were gaining from the people underneath of them. They were actually living off of their downlines. And in the scriptures, we're taught a very different principle of what it means to be a leader. It means that we serve the people who are on our downlines. We don't benefit from them. We don't make our life because of them. We actually live to care for them. You know, Jay was talking and he was picking on me a little bit about the elders retreat that we had and the fact that I said he's unemotional. I always think Jay worked for Pico, for those of you who don't know, for a lot of years. Excellent now, right? But he worked for Pico, and I always think it's kind of a corporate business meeting when he talks. And it, he always takes things that I take a long time to say. He puts them in about ten words, and, you know, there they are, and it's real cut and dry. But, you know, what he didn't necessarily tell you all about was, was the tears that were shed at that elders retreat. As we gathered and we started to pray, and we didn't just pray, you know, kind of ambiguous prayers, God bless our church. We prayed for individual people, people who we know are going through heartfelt concerns in their lives. When our deacons get together, we pray. We gather bi-monthly to ask God's blessing over the different families in our church. We have a constant need of, as leaders of going before the throne room of God and saying, how can we serve the people underneath us? And the reason why we have things like elders retreats and deacons meetings and all of the different stuff you see on the church calendar on a leadership level is because we want to serve. Not because we want to get someplace, not because we want to grow, but because we want to serve. And that's what it means to love your downline. Now, For the rest of this morning, we're going to talk through two different kind of ideas. One side of this is going to be this document, which I'm going to read to you. The other is going to be a passage of scripture coming from John 13. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, John 13 is the scripture we're going to read. But beforehand, I'm going to read this. This is a a heartbreaking, heartrending set of papers, if you will. Jim Howland's mother passed away this year. And uh, when they were going through the, the different things that a woman leaves behind, this was a document that his mother had written. Now, Jim has uh, three siblings that are in good health, and then he has one who is profoundly handicapped. And this document is, is something his mom wrote after she heard a sermon pertaining to this young boy who was on her downline, who she cared for deeply, but was struggling with deeply as well. And so it's kind of her back-and-forth conversation with God and herself about what it meant to love the person on her downline, and not just any person, but a person who was profoundly handicapped and couldn't love her back. So I'm going to read it for you. It's just a couple pages. It says, It is Thanksgiving time again, and my mind returns to a sermon I heard a year ago. During this past year, I have thought often of that sermon, or more truly, I have thought of another sermon, another message brought directly to me through the sermon from the pulpit. The minister spoke on the love of God. Let nothing separate you from the love of God, he said. I do not say I have become separated from the love of God, but the problems of the past few years had undoubtedly put a strain on the relationship. I had never doubted God's love for me, but the physical and emotional exhaustion associated with the care of a retarded child had resulted, I fear, in a spiritual exhaustion as well. In a very powerful and convincing way, the minister interpreted the love of God. And as is expected in such a sermon on this theme, he spoke of the love of God as the love of a parent. I had always, I'm sorry, this was not new. Time and time again, we have spoken of God as a father. I had always thought, however, as God's love as a love such as a parent feels for a normal child, quote unquote, a love mixed with pride, 
It is easy to love an alert, eager child with an inquiring mind, one who responds to your love, who is able to follow your guidance, who is able to fulfill your dreams for him. I had thought, too, of the love of God as the love of a parent for a naughty child, needing to forgive and give another chance. Today the thought seemed to come with a new face. God loves you as you love Richard. Richard was her handicapped child. This was new for my love for Richard, though just as deep and real as for my other children, which was a quite different love. Before we had Richard, I had never thought at all of the love that binds a parent to a handicapped child. I simply had never thought of the tragic problems of the mentally retarded and of the great havoc these children cause in the families to which they belong. Though Richard demanded constant supervision, though his great activity kept our house in wild disorder and the nerves of everybody on edge, though we realized we could not possibly meet the needs of Richard and our normal children, yes, we loved Richard. We loved him and went to great lengths to provide for him whatever we or anyone else could think of for his protection and happiness. Special locks and hooks on doors, special gates and fences, anything that could make life with Richard possible and his life with us happier. We tried. We came to the place finally where we could see with our hearts that we had known with our minds for a long time that we could not meet his special needs. And with great love for him and concern for our other children, we did the most difficult thing in our lives when we took steps to have Richard institutionalized. Though we made continuous sacrifices, giving up practically all outside activities in order to care for Richard, the sacrifice of children too, Richard was not able to understand that we made sacrifices for him. He was not able to recognize me as his mother. After five weeks separation, he did not recognize us at all. And now after a year when we visit him, he scarcely notices us. It is hard to love so deeply and have no recognition of that love. Think about those words. It is hard to love so deeply and have no recognition of that love. Yet the love is there, deep, abiding, yearning for Richard, grieving that we cannot reach him. Is not the love of God for his children like this? God loves us, whether we are able to recognize that love or not. He was always waiting, anxious to receive us again as children, ready to restore the true father-child relationship. There are people who in all sincerity say, oh, well, you have your other children. I was guilty of that myself. I remember when I attempted to console a friend who had lost a child. I know now how, how shallow such thinking is. Though we have four beautiful normal children, quote-unquote, one who came to our home four months after Richard left it has brought us great joy during these years of separation from Richard. The loss of, Rich, loss of Richard is not less painful. It is true that the other children occupy my time. I do not have to sit and brood, but our grief and heartbreak is as deep and as real as if Richard were our only child. Richard is our child, and as such, we cannot transfer his love to another. We love him. There is a space in our hearts that belongs to him, and though we have a family of four fine children, we feel the vacancy. I find myself biting my lips to keep back the tears when the four are playing happily together, when as a family we go to Sunday school, though to others we may look complete, I know one is missing, and my heart longs for him. Does not God long for us when we fail to come to him? Is there not a vacancy in his family when one of his children is separated from his love? With these thoughts has come the conviction that since God loves me and I love Richard, his great love will guide me and strengthen me and help me face the problems if I can yield myself to him. And then in smaller print it reads this, These thoughts, ponderings, were written by our mother, 
Vera Miller Holland. She and Daddy never shared these thoughts with us, their quote-unquote normal children. They bore them together in quiet dignity and love. You know, there, there are these moments when you read something and you think in a relationship series it just really honestly needs to be read out loud. We just need to think. And that's years ago, and it maybe even is a different way of handling the problem that the Holland family faced. But decades ago, this was a, a serious issue for them. And hearing this woman's heartfelt cries reminds me of what it means to love your downline. Though she institutionalized this young boy, she never stopped loving him, never stopped visiting him, never, stopped, never walked away in any way. I want to read for you from John chapter 13. And what we're going to find there, I hope, I suspect, I expect, will look very much like what Vera Holland was experiencing. What you're going to see in this story is the story of Jesus on the very last night before he died on the cross. This is Thursday night, and on Friday he dies. And so this is the last evening, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But what's happening in this story is that he has different expectations. And frankly, I think he might be dealing with people who are slightly, maybe even more than slightly, handicapped in a very different sort of way. Peter, James, John, and the disciples that we're going to read about in, these story, in this story, they were people who were, that were damaged by this world system. And they had come to understand love only the way they had received it previously. And what Jesus is going to do in this story is going to radically alter the way they understood love and leadership to work. It's going to change everything for them. So I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. It should be on the screen behind me as well. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. He put the towel on as opposed to his garments. I need just to tell you that if you were following the story beforehand, you'd see a diametric set of expectations, some, some opposites are appearing in this story, if you will. Jesus walks into this room and he understands something. This has been a great week of ministry and he's in the capital city of Israel for the, for the, the greatest holiday of their, of their calendar year. Okay? And they're moving towards the most celebratory moment where they remember what God has done for them. And this night was a night of expectancy and somewhat of enthusiasm and excitement. But he's walking towards this moment when he knows he's going to die. And he knows that when he's gathering with these, his 12 closest friends, one of them has already put, been, been kind of thinking about and eventually will actually decide to betray him. And so he's looking out there and what he's seeing is, is, is 12 friends, but one of them is not so much a friend. What's more is he understands that all of the authority, according to this passage of Scripture, that has been in the world at all is now placed on his shoulders. This is a different sort of authority than we usually think of when we think of authority. It's not Jesus' power to rule. That's what we would naturally think. Instead, it's Jesus' power to save. From the very first moment when God said, let there be light, till the very last moment, which we have never yet seen, when the stars fall from the sky, there is this whole broad range of history past and the future and the present that Jesus is living in. And he realizes that at this moment, while there may have been a choice at other periods in his life, there is now only this moment. And all of that time, from the very beginning to the very end, is resting or hanging by a thread from what he will do in the next 24 hours of his life. The authority that sits on his shoulders is not a blessing, it's a burden. 
And he walks into this dinner knowing it's going to be his last meal on earth. This is the last moment before he dies. And so his expectations are not necessarily those of an expectant, enthusiastic, celebratory disciple. He's actually facing this moment with great damage and great fear, knowing that what is in him as far as love is going to result in his very death within 24 hours of this meal. The disciples, they walk in with completely different sorts of expectations. If you've read the Gospels coming up to this moment in the, in the history of the world, you would have seen these disciples, especially Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples to Christ, they were always posturing. They were always kind of comparing themselves to each other and thinking, how can we get ahead? Jesus was the greatest rabbi of his day. He was working miracles, and here he was at the, at the, at the great moment, the Passover feast in Jerusalem, and he, they thought he would take over as the leader of the, of the nation. And so they were people who had gone from being fishermen and being tax collectors and being regular, everyday artisans, laborers. They had been dragged from behind that sort of life, and they were, they were now placed under the leadership of this great rabbi, and they loved it. They were in the spotlight again. And they were given the opportunity to shine, and they started to think of themselves as special and of different. James and John, two of Jesus' cousins probably, actually came to him with their mother at one point and said, can we sit at the right and left of you when you come into your throne room, when you come into the kingdom of heaven? Can we be the leaders alongside you? They were self-promoting people, not people who were humble. Peter actually at one point kind of chastises Jesus and says, what you're trying to do, this whole political thing you're doing, is you're not doing it right. These guys were constantly comparing and thinking of themselves as better than the other. And so when they walked into this room on that last night of Jesus' life, when they walked into the room, they were probably all still posturing. And on this meal, what was really important is whoever sat to the right of the teacher. Now that was the special person, if you will. That was the person who was beloved. That was the person who had the greatest respect. And so I suspect as they walked in, they were all trying to get as close to Jesus as possible. So as the 13 of them kind of gathered around this table, they could all sit as close to Christ as possible because that would mean they were more important as opposed to those other disciples who were on the other end of the table. So finally, all of the jockeying for position ends and they, they're all seated and Jesus is at the head of the table. But nobody noticed that there was something missing. At every meal like this in Jerusalem, at this sort of feast, they had somebody, a servant usually, who they paid or they conscripted to sit at the door. And that person would wash the people's feet when they walked into the meal. Jerusalem is, is not a clean place in this time. Today it's a place with motorcycles and bikes and cars. Back then it was a place of sheep and goats and donkeys. And the streets had the things that sheep, goats, and donkeys leave behind. To show up at this great meal would be like to show up at Christmas dinner with dog poo on your shoe, you know? And so as they walk in the room, their feet are all dirty, but they know that, that, and there's a basin and there's a towel by the door, but nobody stops to take notice of the fact that there's no servant. And, what, and they all gather around the table and they all sit down and they probably were kind of half reclining and nobody decided to abase themselves. Nobody thought, well, maybe I should fill in for the missing servant. Everybody's just sitting there saying, well, I want to look better than the next guy so nobody can actually humble themselves to do the work that's necessary in this moment. So what happens? Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment. He's in those inner kind of tunic things that the people of the ancient world wore. And he picks up the, the basin and he picks up the towel and he ties the towel around his waist. And even as the disciples are talking, I don't think they get it at this point, he, he, he comes to the first disciple and he kneels down before them 
and he washes that disciple's feet. And I guarantee whatever was happening, that disciple and the ones next to him stopped talking. And they just stared at Christ. And then he moved on after drying that disciple's feet, and he moved on to the next. And I don't know how far along the line he got, but he kept washing disciples' feet. And I suspect that the room, all 13 men, eventually became completely silent. All of the posturing, all of the pride, all of the arrogance fell by the wayside as they were watching their master, their teacher, their leader. And though they probably didn't know it, the God of the universe washed these people's feet, washed their own feet. And so silence falls on the room, and finally Jesus gets to Peter. I'm going to read, starting in verse 5. It says, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. And if you've read about Simon, he's always the guy who says what everybody else is afraid to say. Everybody's thinking these thoughts, but only Peter will say them. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answers and says to him, What I do you don't, you don't realize now, but you will understand later. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Why doesn't Peter want Jesus to wash his feet? It changes us when people serve us, right? We don't like that. We don't like to be served in this way. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. If I have to get clean to be a part of you, Lord God, I'm going to do it. That's what he says. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? I think it's fascinating that what's happening in this story is the God of the universe actually deigns to come down and sit in front of these disciples, and they've got it all wrong. Even though Jesus has taught them lines like, the last will be first, and you're only doing the kingdom work if you're doing it for the least of these. If you just do it for the best, it's not actually kingdom work. It's actually serving nobody but yourselves. Even though he said those lines continuously over his ministry, these disciples just refuse to get it. And so he does this action on the very last night of his life. And I don't think it's necessarily an action that was scripted or that he thought of ahead of time. It's just something that came up in the moment. Nobody washed the feet. Nobody was there to do the job that most needed doing. And so the leader, the greatest leader who had ever walked the face of the earth, actually takes up the towel and does that very job. The scripture has two kind of lines that I want to point out. In verse 1, it says at the very end of the verse, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. And that word end doesn't, doesn't mean he loved them till he died. It doesn't mean he loved them till he left the world. It means he loved them all the way, no matter what they were going through. It's a, it's a matter of degree. It's not a matter of whether or not he was alive to do it. Jesus still loves Peter, James, and John. Jesus still loves us, and he's still alive, very much loving us. But he's loving us in... in in spite of what's happening in this story. These disciples showed up and they had all of the wrong expectations. And what this word really means is Jesus loved them in spite of all of what they were doing. In spite of their expectations and their heart state, Jesus continued to love them. And even as he looked at these disciples and realized how arrogant they were and how messed up they were, he decides, I'm going to love them anyway. And he found a tangible, physical way to show that love by serving them. What does it mean to love your downline? 
It means to sit at the feet of your downline people, whoever it is that you influence, and make sure that their feet are washed. It means to show the love that they don't feel so often in this life. So Jesus kneels at these feet, and he washes these feet, and he says, this is the way to love. And I'll love through all of your arrogant words by washing your feet. I will love through everything you're experiencing in your head and your heart, even though it's messed up, even though it's nasty, even though there's darkness within you, the light will shine in this moment by me washing your feet. It's a dangerous, nasty job, if you will. And Jesus does it masterfully. There's a second line here. First off, we love our downline. First off, we love the people we influence. But in verse 12, he closes this whole, whole event out with a line. It says, do you know what I have done to you? You know, the, the way that phrase reads, you'd almost think he hit him. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I once uh, was friends with this guy at a workplace. I worked down on the main line at Vanguard, and uh, I worked with this Pitney Bowes, this Pitney Bowes mechanic who fixed these, these, these machines, and he was historically kind of Jewish, but nominally was a part of all the... He's, he's kind of a weird place as far as religion, but he loved to talk to me about religion. He was just one of those intellectual guys who just loved to kind of debate. And he would show up at my machine, and he would talk about these things. And I remember going back and forth, and he believed in this weird God called Stitchin, believe it or not. And, and this God came to earth and did all these weird things. And, he said, and every time I would say, that's ridiculous. What sort of God is that? And it, it really was a ridiculous religion. It's not like all of the normal religious viewpoints you hear about. He says, well, it is ridiculous, but your God is that ridiculous. That's what he would always say. That was always his response. And we would go back and forth. And it was fun. I mean, it wasn't a nasty debate. It was the sort of thing he found fun. But one day I remember looking at him and I said, and as he walked away, I just said these words. I said, listen, you may not believe in this God, but I promise you that he loves you. And he turned around and his face looked twisted with hate. Of all the things I could have said, the intellectual debate and even some insults towards his religion and him throwing him at mine, none of that mattered. It was no big deal. That was part of the game. But the minute I said, Jesus loves you, his face twisted. He said, you will never say that to me again. He was so angry. When, the, when I read these words, that's what I think of. Do you know what Jesus did to these people? Do you know what he's done to you? When he forgave you, do you know that he changed your life forever? Many of us, we believe in a quick moment that we've been changed, but we forget to show it to all of the people we influence. We forget the fact that Jesus loved us and washed our feet and literally died on a cross to save us from our sins. We forget that fact when we look at the people around us whom we're supposed to love. The fifth time I answer my daughter's question, and it's the same question over and over again, I wonder if I love her in that same degree. Do I love her through her continuous questioning? You ever have a kid ask those questions? Why? 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 Why do we go to church? Because we love God. Why do we love God? Because um, he told us to. Why did he tell us to? And it goes on and on and on. Do we love our kids? Five, six questions into that. Do we love our kids when they debate us? Do we love our, the people at work who look up to us when they do stupid things? Does God love us when we do stupid things? Does God love us when we blow it time and time and time again? 
And so Jesus ends this whole deal with, a, with almost in a disciplinary statement. And I think the two things that are necessary to be a good leader in this story, one is you have to absolutely, authentically, sacrificially love the people who look up to you. But the second is you actually have to be truthful and discipline them. And the discipline here doesn't look anything like a spanking. It doesn't look like a timeout. It doesn't look like any of that stuff. What it looks like is he's actually changing them by his love in a way they find uncomfortable. And after this, they're going to find it impossible not to believe that their lives have to be oriented to serving the other people around them because God has served them. God serving them translates into them serving others. Wouldn't that be an amazing picture? That's what it means to, do, to love your downline. It's hard to love so deeply and, no, and have no recognition of that love. This story ends in a terrible way. The story, the, the ultimate story ends with a resurrection, and we love that story, right? We love the resurrection. But this night story ends very painfully. As the disciples, after a long conversation following this moment, they follow Jesus to a garden across the valley, and they go up into this place, and Jesus meets with his father and prays. And he's sitting there praying, and he asks the disciples to wait for him. And do you remember what they do after this moment? They fall asleep. Jesus gathers with them and says, this is the roughest night of my life. Your expectations may be different, but my expectations are that I'm going to die. My expectations are that I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to go through this horrific moment. And what I need is support from you, and they actually fall asleep on the job. The transformation takes a few weeks to occur. It eventually comes, and these guys change the world, literally. But it doesn't come overnight. And it's amazing. It's amazing to think that like us, like me, we have a hard time accepting the love of God. We have a hard time getting rid of our arrogance and our pride. And yet Christ somehow, although it's hard, loves us even though we don't reciprocate that love. Even when he looks down at us and we don't actually love him back, even though we don't necessarily serve each other, he continues to love. He continues to forgive. I've been doing a real study uh, a deep study with a few different people in our church on Ephesians 1. And there are these two words in Ephesians 1 that it says, and it it splits them up. It says that God redeems us through Christ and he forgives us through Christ. And I suspect that redemption is a one-time deal. We're redeemed. We're bought back. We've been sinful, messed up people who needed buying. But on the other hand, there's this moment when God actually has to come in. And it's not a moment back there. It's a moment today when he has to forgive us again and again and again. Did you ever think about the fact that whatever you did today in the way of blowing it, and probably you did, I know I did, I can think of the one moment in my day so far, I could probably think of more if I worked at it, I can think of the one moment where I really blew it with God today. But did you ever think that he's still washing our feet? He's still cleansing our lives? He's still forgiving us, though we blow it, over and over and over again? Jesus symbolically washes these disciples' feet to show them love and to show them what they're supposed to do for each other. But he's still washing feet today. He's still changing our lives in the same way he changed theirs. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you require us to be altered. You require us to be transformed. You don't require it in the sense that you say you have to be transformed. You must go do this. What you do is you, you change us. You, you serve us in such a way that we find it impossible to somehow miss the point. And you do this over and over again because we have short memories and we have short attention spans. 
And you over and over again remind us of the fact that you are the God who cleanses. You are the God who serves. And you, the greatest, most perfect human being ever, gave your life for those of us who are weak, those of us who have failed, those of us whose self-discipline doesn't seem to last from one day to another. We ask for your healing and your forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, most of all, that you would help us to be people who love our downlines the way you love yours. We ask that you would change us into people who can actually be transformers of others because you have transformed us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.